So maybe then, Alex, it seems traditional for you to start. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I am Alex Perrine, a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. And this is The Politics of Everything, a podcast about being locked in your apartment for the rest of your life (laughs) because of the coronavirus. And also culture, media, and politics. (laughs) And also those other things as well, which we hope will still exist. Okay, well, so this week I'm in my house, in my bedroom, <laughs> with a rigged podcast recording set up, and Alex is in his own apartment yes. um, with a similar thing going on. Here in my ad hoc home studio in my bedroom. This really feels like uh, we should be forming a band. <laughs> uh, okay, so we have a coronavirus story this week. By the time that this is broadcast in a couple of days, we, I think, have to anticipate that more will have changed. But what we're going to be talking about is some of the deeper history of the U.S. response to pandemics, the way we understand them, and the kinds of things that are needed for an effective response. And we're going to be talking to Laurie Garrett, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning science writer, the author of The Coming Plague, which is a book about emerging diseases in the 20th century And she has a piece in the May issue of The New Republic specifically about how this coronavirus, COVID-19, emerged and how it all relates to political leadership or the lack thereof. Laurie, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, And where are you calling in from today? New York City, the epicenter. Yes. So we're we're all in New York, which doesn't feel like a great place to be. And we're all in some degree of self-isolation, I should think. Yes, as it is lightly snowing outside. So, Laurie, I believe you wrote about a period in which people thought we had basically practically eradicated the threat of pandemic-like diseases, right? Like there was a lot of optimism about the future of public health starting in the 50s and going on through the 60s, wasn't there? Well, the arrival of the antibiotic era, coupled with rapid production of one really major vaccine breakthrough after another, the measles vaccine, the mumps vaccine, diphtheria, typhoid, tetanus, these revolutionized child survival. I mean, overnight, entire societies went from having uh, statistical life expectancies down in the 40s because of the skewing of those statistics by high mortality rates in children to life expectancy jumping up practically overnight into the 60s because the kids weren't dying of all these terrible diseases that had been so lethal for centuries. And I think we really went into the 1980s filled with optimism that was, of course, bitterly challenged by the arrival of the third great pandemic of world history, the HIV-AIDS pandemic. But horribly, most of the governments around the world saw HIV as an exception rather than a harbinger of what was coming. They saw it as, you know, oh, it's a, it's about gay people. And instead of seeing HIV as a shot across the bow warning us that our optimism about the defeat of infectious diseases was unwarranted, instead they saw it just as like a funny little aberration over in a box by itself. Meanwhile, we see the pace of emergence of disease rapidly accelerate so that as we go into the 90s, it seems every year there's a new 
disease emerging or a new permutation of an old disease, but with new mutated characteristics that are deeply challenging. And one by one, our armamentarium starts to collapse amid uh, widespread drug resistance in huge ranges of populations of fungi, bacteria, and viruses, so that even the things that we were counting on as the cause for great optimism, the toolkit to fight microbes was becoming less and less valuable because the microbes were mutating around him. And then finally, at the same time, horribly, we have a complete change in the nature of the pharmaceutical industry on the entire planet so that one by one, all these small family pharmaceutical companies many of which were built around the early vaccine era or the early antibiotic era, these start getting swallowed up by ever larger corporations so that by the end of the 90s, we're down to less than 10 really large pharmaceutical companies on the planet with very high expectations of stock returns for their investors and a whole shift in their profit orientation so that making a product that cures people becomes less and less attractive because you only take it once and then you get cured and they shift their entire apparatus towards attention to chronic treatment, getting people committed to a daily medication that they take for the rest of their lives. And in terms of the government response to a disease when it does emerge or more accurately, I suppose, an outbreak, have we learned anything from the last 50 years? I mean, the response to HIV AIDS is notoriously awful. But I've noticed, um, as I'm sure many people will, that many of the officials now leading the response to coronavirus kind of made their careers as AIDS researchers. And they have mentioned HIV AIDS in some of their press conferences. But it's not clear to me, as someone just watching this, whether the American public health leaders are using anything they've learned from responding to that pandemic in this case? Well, I think HIV spawned a whole generation of scientists and clinicians who operated by a completely different set of rules compared to the past. Young scientists and activists joined hands. That had never happened before. Activists pushed that you shouldn't submit new findings to a journal and await, you know, a six-month process for publication in scientific literature if there's lives on the line. And the scientists themselves began to collaborate and share findings in ways that had not been the norm in the past. So you come to the coronavirus situation today and you see that the lion's share of all the scientific work is open source that it is considered immoral to hide behind publication paywalls and to hoard samples of viruses or to fail to share your data and findings with other scientists in a timely fashion. The result is that we actually know more about this virus after just three months than we knew about HIV after 10 years. Maybe you can reassure me on this, but I, what I'm hoping is that I see there's a lot of sort of world collaboration going on among scientists and researchers. I also see, for example, people still seeking patents for their potential serological test, a blood test to see if someone already had the virus or not. Are there American companies who are still, for example, 
hoping to make a profit off this who will be less collaborative? Or do you think that sort of everyone's in this together? My goodness. I mean, one of the things you see with stock investor analysts is that they're advising their clients to buy pharmaceutical stocks so they can make a lot of money. I don't see any lack of profiteering, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) And I mean, just look at the difficulties we have in getting diagnostics out the door. A lot of it is because there was insufficient profit potential. And the same with trying to get companies to rev up production of masks. Why rev up production of masks when an 85 cent mask can command $7 per mask if you just hoard them, hold back release, and see all the states across the United States and all the countries across the world bid against each other for scarce resources and supplies? Yeah, that's. I mean, that does seem to be the case. What's interesting to me is if you go now to some of the websites that are aggregating data on sort of pipeline development of new diagnostics, new vaccine potentials, new treatments, you can see that they're heavily dominated by Chinese and Korean manufacturers. And I think there's two reasons for this. One is, of course, that they got hit earlier by the epidemic than the West, and so they jumped on it with all their weight, but also because they have very different structures in the relationship between the state, state investment, and private sector development. And they have huge systems in place to promote the rapid movement of innovations from their academic centers and their, uh, you know, centers of invention into the pipeline of production. And we have just the opposite. I mean, the obstacles that are in place in the United States that prevent and block getting things quickly from a research laboratory into commercialization, regulatory approval, and mass production throughout Europe and the United States are just immense, immense, and uh, and stupid for the most part. So I, we saw this with the delay in the U.S. getting testing. Would that be fair to say? Well, the delay in testing was complicated by a whole set of not obstacles, but bad decisions made in the Trump administration. Well, one question I had for you on that is you talked about the consolidation of the pharmaceutical industry in the U.S. And I noticed that when the director of the CDC, when he testified before Congress, he said one of the reasons we didn't get the high throughput test from South Korea was that the American labs couldn't handle that test. Um, is, is there an issue there with the infrastructure we've got in the U.S., which is so dependent on a few labs, a few pharmaceutical companies, that we weren't able to get the technology that other parts of the world were already successfully using? The labs that the CDC was referring to are public health laboratories. And the reason that a lot of our American public health laboratories couldn't handle high-throughput, high-tech approaches is because they've been so grossly cut in their budgets over the last 20 years. I mean, we've just seen a savaging of the budgets of most local and state public health. And uh, in some states, it's down to really the labs are shut down. And so the problem that the CDC faced was trying to come up with a test kit that could be handled by very sophisticated and well-funded laboratories in places like California and New York, but also be handled by grossly underfunded, underskilled and resource labs in places like Mississippi and Arkansas. 
And this disparity in the amount of money that had come from the federal level to back local health, and then the amount of money that had been carved out of budgets by state legislatures, you know, let's, let's keep in mind, we've had a primary political tension that's run through the American society since Ronald Reagan that is about cutting down, quote, big government, close quote, and fighting taxation. So we've had one party that has favored government regulation and construction of government response capacity, and another party that has opposed all of that for decades. So public health sits right in the middle of that fight. It is a government service. You can't do public health privatizing it. You know, societies that have tried have seen it fail. You may go a decade without a killer epidemic. And pretty soon your politicians say, hey, we haven't seen a killer epidemic. Why are we spending, you know, $5 million over here on these doctors that are sitting in a lab looking for things that are never showing up? Let's get rid of all of this. We don't need all this. There's no big threat. And then bam, the threat hits and you find out you don't have an infrastructure. I was doing a little bit of research on this for a possible story, but I was going back and I was reading old New York Times stories about New York City's hospital beds. Currently, New York City has about 20,000 hospital beds. And you can go back 30 years, basically, to the fiscal crisis in the 70s. And what you will see is stories about how New York has too many hospital beds. Just every year, story after story after story about how New York in 1985 had 36,000 hospital beds. And the New York Times said state officials agree that's too many. And what happened shortly after that was... A bad flu and the AIDS epidemic overwhelmed the number of hospital beds it had then. And now here we are in 2020 with only 20,000 hospital beds in New York, and they're desperately building more. Well, and the same is true all over the entire country. What, what happened is more and more healthcare was privatized, and more and more healthcare was required to demonstrate that it could turn a profit, not just cover its costs, but turn a profit is that having an empty hospital bed became synonymous with bad economic policy. Well, why would that be? Because hospitals, whether they're private or public, all came to realize that an empty bed is actually, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars of personnel cost, cleaning cost, et cetera. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like a staggering lack of foresight because like every year, even just the regular flu has a potential to overwhelm our hospitals. But we had the end of January and all of February to be preparing for this. And I think, you know, we mentioned the testing fiasco, and there's probably an entire episode you could do just on that. But as it was apparent that the CDC was not able to test properly and that we would not be able to have the sort of response that a country like South Korea did, why were people not sort of panicking then? Why did it take so long for public officials to actually begin taking this seriously? Well, you know, every epidemic starts with one case. Intervention is easier with smaller numbers mm -hmm. and costs you less, takes less time, saves more lives. But at every step of the way, politicians and uh, even health leaders shrug and say, eh, it's only three cases. Eh, it's only 100 cases. Eh, it's 200 cases, but they're all in this finite geography. Oh, it's 500 cases and it's kind of dispersed and I guess we should be doing something about it. This has been the story of every single darned epidemic we've had in the modern era. In the case of the United States, it's even more egregious because 
we decided, our White House and federal level decided, that we could actually hold the virus off by pulling up the drawbridge and hoping the virus wouldn't swim across the moat into our American castle. But of course, we had already had cases in America before we started pulling up the drawbridges. And it's no surprise that one of the first real outbreaks we see is outside Seattle, because we know there was an individual who traveled from Wuhan and came into the Seattle airport on January 10th and subsequently was diagnosed with a high fever and pneumonia, but was bounced around from hospital to hospital, exposing quite a number of people before it was connected to the disease going on in China at the time. And so we've had a lot of cases like that, bouncing around America. There's a reason that we suddenly realize it's in 50 states, because we were blindly believing that somehow pulling up the drawbridge would protect the whole nation. And that was a mistaken policy from day one. Yet the president continues to say that that policy bought America time. Well, okay, if you think that's true, what were you doing with that bought time? What would the smart thing to have done with that bought time? What would it have been? Well, the first thing you would have wanted to do was to have really intense inventories done so that you knew really how many hospital beds do you have in America? What's your surge capacity? Oh yeah, and how are we doing on masks? How are we doing on ventilators? There should have been direct encouragement of manufacturers to get them moving along. There should have been identification of legal impediments that might slow down our response. We should have had a clear discussion. What kind of test do you want? Do you just want to let the CDC come up with whatever they come up with and then use that? Or should you have actually said, okay, we're going to need to know three things. We need to know, number one, who is diagnosed with the disease and needs intensive care treatment right now. So for that, we need a really accurate, highly sensitive, highly specific COVID-19 diagnostic test. Separately, we need a surveillance test, quick, dirty. It can even be slightly inaccurate but something that allows us to go out on a population basis and do quick epidemiology to figure out where is the virus spreading. And then we should have had a third test that would answer a different epidemiological question. And that is, how many people out there in America have already been exposed? They haven't necessarily ever gotten sick. We know the majority of people who are exposed don't show full-blown symptoms of COVID. Those should have all been in development by January at the latest as a full crash program, not a let's take a lab that we've cut 20% of the budget on down in Atlanta where people are working 24-7 shifts and ask this poor, impoverished setting to come up with a diagnostic kit. Right. And I mean, Laura and I were both in Brooklyn. We were both sick earlier this month. Neither one of us have been tested. That's right, Laura? Uh, no. And this is something I've been sort of fixated on, but where is exactly what you were just describing? I mean, do you have any sense of how far we are from being able to do that kind of like mass research? So antibody tests, which we also call serology tests, have in fact been invented. We have one consortia that invented one form that involves some medical researchers in New York collaborating with folks from Scandinavia. There is a commercialized version rolling out in South Korea right now. They claim they can manufacture 300,000 test kits a week 
And we'll see if our FDA approves them. That's the next big stumbling block. And then do we have money to buy from South Korea? And will they be willing to sell to us? Because every country in the world is going to want these kits. Mm -hmm. And South Korea has had a very successful fight with this virus because they base their whole fight on testing. They first rolled out a diagnostic test. Then they rolled out quick screening tests. They have drive-through screening all over the country, and you can just drive up to a station. They'll test you in your car, and you pull over and wait for your results. And if you test positive, then they immediately have the wherewithal to direct you to the proper treatment center, and off you go. We don't have any of this. And it's not clear that the federal government has set aside funds to purchase any of this. The emphasis in the United States is on now a big fight over whether or not chloroquine will work as a treatment and some accusations by the right wing that the left wing is sitting on an effective treatment for this disease. If chloroquine were an effective treatment for this disease and all it entailed was distributing this old drug all over America, all over the world, believe me, the Chinese would have already used it. <laughs> they would have already gone there. So, and what you just described um, happening in South Korea, it's, it's such an incredibly ambitious program or set of programs and presumably has required there a very high degree of sophisticated coordination between the different bodies working on it. I think one source of major confusion for most people, you know, people who aren't covering this stuff every day, is who's responsible for what in the U.S.? There's a kind of sea of acronyms. There's the FDA, there's the CDC, the NIH, and then uh, you've got the WHO. Who's meant to be doing what? How are they supposed to ideally work together so that the FDA isn't holding up a test that the CDC could be putting out or isn't stopping um, another country's test getting into the American market we have a really messy patchwork system for response to epidemics, and this has been noted many times. It has been brought up by a sort of small coterie of very dedicated scientists and public health advocates for three decades. And each time we've had an epidemic threat or a major flu epidemic, the frailties have been visible. Everybody could see it. In only one case did a president take a step to actually confront that confusing mosaic of often contradictory agency responsibilities, and that was President Obama during the uh, 2014 Ebola outbreak when he appointed Ron Klain to sit inside the White House as a sort of czar over all emerging diseases. It really comes down to the president of the United States. The president has the authority to command the executive branch of government, does not have to go to Congress unless that command entails shifting financial resources dramatically, which then may require legislative approval. And when the president says, quote, I take no responsibility, well, then who is it? If it's not the president, if it's not the White House, it's nobody. It's chaos. Well, so this brings us, I guess, nicely to the piece that you have in our May issue, which is in some ways a tale of two leaders, Xi Jinping and Trump. Um, and you see some similarities in their failures to direct their countries amid this outbreak. 
What I argue in the piece is that the entire pandemic really comes down onto the shoulders of the two most powerful men in the world, commanding the two largest economies on the planet. They'd been at each other's throats for quite some time over trade disputes and other political disputes. They had alternated between describing each other as great friends and describing each other as great enemies. And because of their very, very disparate views of the future of the world economy and steps they were taking to deal with that, they were really very much at loggerheads well before the first case of COVID emerges in November in China. And steps each of them took over the course of time from that first case in November until March were constantly counterbalanced in their decision thread, in the way they reached their decisions against the larger global economic desires they had, visions they had, and against the sort of reputation each of them as very flawed personal leaders, individuals, felt about their future. The United States viewed it all as China's problem. There were no real attempts made at the top levels of the United States government, of any European government, to anticipate this is coming our way. And so country by country, except those who'd been through SARS or MERS, such as Singapore, Japan, Hong Kong, South Korea, and so on, all the rest of the world seems to have greeted the arrival of the virus in a state of shock and dismay, thoroughly unprepared thoroughly underestimating the virus, vanquished by their enemy. Well, Lori, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you are probably incredibly busy as one of the main experts on all of this stuff happening. So I want to really thank you for taking time to talk to us today. Well, thank you for your interest. And thanks to The New Republic for featuring my analysis as its cover story. I'm quite thrilled about this. quite honored. Yeah, everyone make sure you get the May issue. It's a great story. Yeah, thank you so much, Laurie. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Uh, We are joined, as we are on every show, by Walter Shapiro, the New Republic's campaign reporter, who has been on the trail and now, like so many of the rest of us, is holed (laughs) up at home. Um, First of all, thanks so much for talking to us again, Walter. Well, it's exciting here high above West 86th Street on New York's (laughs) ever-fashionable Upper West Side. (laughs) Last time we talked, we were just beginning to talk about how disruptive the coronavirus was going to be. I don't think we really realized how quickly and how disruptive it would get. It's upended the campaign, though, right? Oh, it's upended everything. The fact is that even if we did not have the virus shutdowns, Biden would be hard-pressed to find anything terribly relevant to do until he unveils his VP nominee in early July. So since we're always talking about everything growing exponentially, this is weird time normally multiplied by weird time in terms of the virus leads to high exponential weirdness. (laughs) (laughs) Exponential weirdness is definitely the theme of the year so far. (laughs) Um, So, I I mean, if that's completely dominating the headlines, and it will be for the foreseeable future, is Biden and his campaign, are they going to have to, like, work extra hard to try to insert themselves into the news cycle? Like, are they going to have to do sort of crazy stunt-like things to get attention? I hope not. I think a lot of what Biden should be doing over the next couple of months 
is rethinking what the Democratic Party ideology is at a time when we have such unprecedented changes in policies of the United States government, where the Republican Party is suddenly in favor of sending $1,000 checks to every American family. We are in such a strange period about health care, about um, the role of the government in the economy, about the social safety net, that it would not be a bad thing to spend a couple of months talking with experts, thinking, and just realizing that all the old arguments, how you achieve um, full medical coverage, they're all now outmoded by the disease. Events have outpaced the politics, right? Yep. Yeah. Oh, totally. All I can remember is shortly after Pearl Harbor, Franklin Roosevelt said, Dr. New Deal has retired. He has been replaced by Dr. Win the War. <laughs> and we're in a similar moment in American history. Obviously, the primary thing that gets talked about with a candidate. Oh, can I just guess? Can I just guess that <laughs> it's, it's two words and the first word is vice? <laughs> yes. You read my mind. I don't know how you did it. Uh, traditionally, there are two elements in someone picking a vice president. Personal chemistry, which is particularly important to Biden since he served as vice president. And number two, who can help the Democratic ticket the most? And to a large extent, who can help the Democratic ticket the most will be based on polling in early July on what are Biden's major deficiencies. Is it mobilizing African-American turnout? That might be an argument for Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams. Um, is it bringing out the Latino vote? That might be an argument for other candidates. So what you get right now is there's an obvious list of 10 of 12 people, and that obvious list has appeared everywhere. And we're not going to learn too much about that for the next couple of months. Part of it is there is nothing more manipulative than the de facto nominee leaking word about vice presidential selection. Partially, this is done to assuage a candidate's ego or build up their reputation. For example, Jean Shaheen, the senator from New Hampshire, looks like she has an easy re-election. But if she were to have a hard re-election, you could imagine lots of leaks from the Biden campaign about how well uh, she's regarded by <laughs> Vice President Biden. The other aspect of it is all the signals to try to create a unified party. One can see lots of meetings with Elizabeth Warren, lots of warm signals as a way to signal to the left of the Democratic Party that we hear you. So a lot of even the good leaks are basically manipulating the press for larger interests of the campaign. And for everyone obsessed with vice presidents, I would recommend just tuning out entirely and checking back in on June 15th. <laughs> I think that's good advice. Um, given the sort of slow start that Biden got off to in the primary, though, and some concerns that voters might have about him, how important do you think the vice president pick ultimately is? I mean, is this something that could bring in a big group of people who've had reservations about Biden and also someone who could crucially widen his appeal in the general? Here I take um, as gospel the person I look for gospel in all matters, Richard M. Nixon who said in 1968, a vice president cannot help you, he can only hurt you. This didn't prevent him from picking Spiro Agnew, <laughs> who did hurt Nixon, but 
the truth is, for the most part, correct, that it is really hard to think of a vice president who brought in even his or her own state going back to the 70s. Maybe Walter Mondale helped Jimmy Carter win Minnesota in 1976. Maybe Al Gore helped Bill Clinton win Tennessee in 1992. But for the most part, it matters only in the margins. I don't think that the 2008 election would have been different if Barack Obama had picked someone other than Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Even though I do this on a sort of a regular basis, there are days where I could forget who Hillary Clinton picked as her (laughs) running mate in 2016. In fact, I have to tell you a story. Moving books around, I came upon the glossy campaign book, the Hillary issue book from 2016. Mm-hmm. And I saw Hillary Clinton on the cover, and my immediate reaction is, who is that man with her? <laughs> it took me five seconds to remember Tim Kaine. And I want to ask, I think, one more kind of silly. It's, it's almost fun to be talking about this instead of talking about the other Oh, thing. anything is better than. Uh, I, uh-huh. I mean, uh, let me talk about my root canal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do you think that there's a chance he does a split ticket with a Republican? I think... He would have been tempted if there were a plausible Republican woman. I would not be stunned beyond belief if Condi Rice, who I believe supports abortion rights, which is the one litmus test for a running mate uh, who's a Republican, gets two or three days of breathless speculation somewhere Mm -hmm. between now and July 1st. The other one who might get an hour and a half of speculation who also supports abortion rights, is Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. That's exactly what I was going to say, actually. <laughs> it, it would be an interesting move. And since uh, Murkowski not only supports abortion rights, uh, as I recall, voted against Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. unlike the courageous Susan Collins, and also was one of the votes to save Obamacare, it would not be a terrible ideological fit though it'd be a little hard to run with someone who thought that Donald Trump shouldn't be impeached. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems like it would be a deal breaker this time around. All right, well, I hope that you are sheltering in place safely, Walter, and uh, thank you so much for talking to us again. Thanks, Walter. Great, thank you. This is the politics of everything. We know you have a lot of coronavirus listening options, and we're very glad you chose ours. Please uh, subscribe and uh, rate and review. Thank you for listening.